So tonight, we are coming back to Exodus chapters uh, three and four. We got started last week, and uh, we got the first part of chapter three uh, done. And so this is kind of like a uh, part three uh, continuation. And I did send out uh, via email a supplement handout. That, so I have a couple of additional slides uh, that I didn't have on last week's uh, lesson. But last week we got started with an introduction, just giving us an overview of the book, uh, Israel in Egypt in the first 15 chapters, and then at Mount Sinai in the rest of the book. We talked a little bit about um, uh, these chapters setting the stage for what's going to come later. And in chapter three, uh, we saw some things that began to raise a question as to when the book of Exodus was finalized. One of that was in the different name changes. We talked a little bit about Moses' father-in-law, uh, the name Ruel and Jethro and Hobad uh, in the book of Numbers as well. And we said that all of this is reflecting a little bit that there's different traditions that are merging together in the book of Exodus. Uh, we also talked a little bit about uh, the location where Moses uh, has this theophany experience. God meets him in the fire of the bush, or as we talked a little bit about last week, it's also a word that could be used for tree as well. And we said that the traditional site was down here in the Sinai Peninsula where St. Catherine's Monastery has been for um, hundreds and hundreds of years, but that there's also a tradition that says Mount Sinai is over here in Saudi Arabia, and the Apostle Paul makes reference to that in the book of Galatians as well. So there's a couple of different traditions in terms of the exact location. We also said that Moses, in shepherding the flocks of Jethro, it doesn't make a lot of sense that if he is here in this area called Midian, that he'd be taking the flock all the way over to the Sinai Peninsula, 100 miles away, uh, to feed them. So it's more than likely uh, Mount Sinai is probably over here in the area of Midian, which is current Saudi Arabia. Now, uh, we talked a little bit about the burning bush, and we said that it can also be translated for a tree and that this fire in the bush never uh, went out. And uh, in a lot of uh, ancient Jewish theology, they see a lot of patterns uh, for the temple and that this bush could be a representation of the lampstand in the holy place um, that it is first revealed in the tabernacle instructions later in the book and then in the actual temple that Solomon built later in Hebrew history. So those are the things that we talked about last week. Uh, we also said that after God met Moses and said he wants him to go and confront Pharaoh to let his people go, that Moses objects several times. And uh, as he does so, uh, what we will see tonight is he has an older brother, Aaron, that will be his mouthpiece. But let's hold on to that just for a second. 
and I want to come back to the name that is revealed to Moses. So if you're in uh, the book of Exodus at the very beginning here, Moses asks a question, uh, which is quite fascinating. Uh, when the Lord says, I've seen the misery of my people in verse seven, and I've heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, I'm going to have you go and uh, confront Pharaoh. And then um, Moses said uh, in verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I have sent, uh, sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So Moses again asked the question in verse 13, who is it that I am to say sent me? And then he says, they're going to ask, what is the name of your God down in verse 13? And God says to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. Uh, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So this uh, name that is revealed is associated with uh, God being the God of the Israelites. Now, what's fascinating to me is the tradition that goes even farther back than Moses. And so a couple of the slides that I sent out as a supplement, I'd like to go to at this time, and then we'll come back to the lower the slide um, when he actually goes before Pharaoh. So in the handout uh, that I sent this week, one of the points that I am trying to make here is that there is kind of a shared mentality in the ancient Near East. That's what A-N-E stands for. And the mindset or the common paradigm of the ancient Near East is that there is a plurality of gods, but each community had their high god, the one that they felt was superior and more powerful than all the other gods. So scholars have said there are six points that the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Israelites, all of these uh, different communities, uh, the mentality that they had, this is what they shared. So let me just kind of go through those because I think it will help us to understand why Moses is insisting on the name. Does that make sense? He wants to know the name. So number one, there's a high God who has this generative power behind all natural and human phenomenon. So in the ancient world, there is the idea that there is a plurality of gods. You have the God of the moon, the God of the sun, you have the God of fertility, you have all these different gods. But usually there is one God that is superior over all those other gods, and they have different names. Number two. That high God is the one that is active in the world, in nature, and in society. And it is that God that uh, presents the moral order for the human uh, race. And with as we think ahead in the book of Exodus, the very first thing after they come out of Egypt is they come to Sinai. And what's the first thing that is done? It's the giving of the Ten Commandments. 
It is the giving of the laws. This So it's setting this moral um, order for this new community of people, the Israelites. Number three, this high God is presented usually in terms of either both natural or human analogies. That ties into Exodus 3. How does God reveal himself? Through a fire that never goes out. And again, this kind of is a preview of the lampstand in the temple where the presence of God is never going out. That uh, lampstand is to con be continually burning. Number four, the high God is known to be powerful, just, and merciful. And that divine power is then in service of justice in the world. So we saw that already here in Exodus 3. I've seen the misery of my people. I've heard their crying out, and I'm going to calm down, and I'm going to deliver them. Number five, the high God is definitely connected to a particular people group or region. So what you have is land is very important in the ancient world, and all of these uh, groupings of people, uh, the Canaanites and Perizzites and Jebusites and Philistines, and uh, they all have their particular gods because their life is connected to the fertility of that land, and it's God that allows them to flourish. So here, when you look at... Um, if you could look at verse eight of Exodus chapter three, it says, so I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. And then notice the description into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So there's this connection to a region and this high God is what's going to allow these people to flourish. The problem is, as if you look at the rest of the verse, is that is also the place. Now, we normally associate the promised land was the place where the Canaanites dwelt, and uh, Joshua is driving out the Canaanites uh, in the book of Joshua. But it's not just the Canaanites. Look here. Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So this land that is fertile and can allow human flourishing is shared by a number of groups of different people groups. And each of these people groups have their own high God that they worship, that they think is going to bring them uh, the benefit of, of good crops, food, uh, protection, all those type of things. Number six, the high God is interpreted and represented by human agents who claim authority to voice divine purpose and will. So here we have a grouping of people who also have their own prophets and priests. Now, later in the Old Testament, there's going to be a confrontation between Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, and the prophets of Baal. Okay, so there's always this um, intermediary uh, that allows the connection between the people and this high God. So hopefully that helps uh, because I think we see a lot of the same components right here in Exodus uh, chapter three at the beginning.
you have some thoughts or questions about these six kind of characteristics of of the ancient Near Eastern religious communities? Any thoughts? Now, let's move ahead here. Now, this is very important to get your hands around. And I'm going to we're we're going to go to a couple of different places in the Old Testament to to uh, illustrate this. We think of Judaism at our point in time as being monotheistic. So monotheistic is mono being one, theism being God, one God. Well, that's kind of the way the Jewish people finally land on their feet. But it takes a while to get there before they believe that there is one God and there are no others. The belief that there's a variety or a plurality of gods is called monolatry. Now, we're often familiar with the term idolatry, right? Well, idols represent these gods, right? But monolatry is this belief that the ancient world believed in a variety of different gods at the same time. What we find is there is this idea that amongst the plurality of gods, uh, there is one that stands out. There's one that is worthy of more worship and devotion than all the others. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go over to the book of Psalms for a moment. If you come to Psalm 95, this is an illustration. I'm going to read the first four verses. It says in Psalm 95, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Okay, so the word Lord there is in all capitals. And when you see in the Old Testament the word Lord in all capitals, it's the name Yahweh that is, is being used there. Okay, so... It says, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. So let's have festivals. Let's praise God. Let's worship this God named Yahweh. Verse three, fascinating. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Do you see that there? In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. This high God or great God is the creator God and he is above all the other gods. Okay, so even here in the Psalms, we find a reflection of monolatry, that there's the belief that there is a, a variety of gods, but there's one high God that's reflected in this name, Yahweh, or Lord. And that's the name that is revealed back in Exodus chapter 3. Any questions or comments there? Now go back. Yeah, to, yeah go, go ahead, please. When Elisha was duking it out with um he was mocking them out and i got the distinct impression and i could be very wrong that 
he did not think Baal existed, that Baal was a false god, not as you would point out with the monolith tree, tree. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. that um, they knew that they thought there was other gods in existence, but Yahweh was the high god. Mm -hmm. So was or just not think there was a Baal? I don't know. Um, at that point in time, uh, there's some time that has elapsed. They might be moving toward a monotheistic understanding. Um, it's kind of hard to say at that point whether he is um, insisting that Yahweh is the great God over Baal. And you'll see in the sub points that I'm going to make here on this slide Um at least initially among a lot of these people groups, it was believed that El, E-L, was the high god that had uh, sons uh, or children, and that Yahweh, Baal, and Ashtoreth were all children of El. Um, so Elijah could be insisting that Yahweh is the one true god, now, L is a different uh, tradition to use L as Elohim, which is another name that appears yeah. in the Old Testament. Um, he may be fighting to say, no, this Yahweh is the great God. Or he could be fighting to say Yahweh is greater than his siblings, Baal and Asherah. However, my thought thought in reading that text is I, I take it the kind of the way you do. There seems to be um, Elijah seems to have some sarcasm in the a way. Lot of it. <laughs> yeah. And um, it could be that he's trying to insist that uh, Elohim didn't have a whole variety of sub gods as children that Yahweh is the one true God. I That's the way I feel as I kind of read that text um but that that isn't the only interpretive option but i mean it it i think it's the more likely one it, in, at least okay. in my opinion yeah okay because the mock out that really stays with me uh -huh. is well maybe he's sleeping or maybe he's going yeah, to do something right. you know, shout louder Maybe he'll yeah, shout louder. Maybe he's on the toilet. There's yeah. there, there's that aspect in that mocking too. So, um, I th I would I would tend to think that Elijah's really making a case for one one supreme God. Now, again, these are all different traditions. A lot of times that are reflected. So in the Psalm here, Psalm ninety five, it seems as though that. When he says the great king above all gods, we might say, does he have in mind other gods or does this term gods, since he's the great king, supposedly a way of expressing the kings of the earth. He's the great king over the kings of the earth. So, you know, it again, 
sometimes there's these interpretive options and and some are clearer than others. Um, I don't know that you can build a case here in Psalm 95 one way or the other. Um, it does seem to be using a lot of supreme uh, language, though. Uh, Lord, great God. If you go down to verse 6, let us bow down and worship and kneel before the Lord, our maker. So, it you know, you have these very exalted type of terms yeah. that are being used here in Psalm 95. But uh, but the, it, it's not just in these poetic sections, okay? Um, and that the next cross-reference, I think, helps us here. Go back to Deuteronomy. So um, if you go back to the last book of the Torah, the second giving of the law, that's what Deuteronomy means, namas being law, Deutero a second giving of the law, um, you have in chapter five, uh, what you have is a repetition of the Ten Commandments. And now here's a little um, Bible study um, um, side trail that you could go down. If you read this version of the Ten Commandments and the version given in chapter 20 of Exodus, you'll see minor differences between them, okay? So, but our point for now is down in verse um, six, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So it's not just it, like in verse eight, you shall not make an image in the form of anything in heaven above or earth below, the idolatry. It seems here, in the even in the Ten Commandments, the idea of other gods. Now, we could make the case that a god is anything that we give our allegiance to. So it's, you know, it could be, you know, it could be other people. It could be, um, it could be riches. It could be power. It could be a whole host of things. But in this context, in the giving of the law here, especially in light of the fact that um, of what we talked about in those six characteristics of the ancient Near Eastern religious mindset, it's probably in reference to other gods um, that people would worship. So here's a... Um, Here's an insight from a Dutch theologian, uh, Cornelius Thiele. Uh, he studies a, um, now this word, uh, shasu, is a word that talks about Semitic nomads that are, that uh, basically uh, watch over cattle, which is a description of Moses here in Exodus. And uh, it's and this is these are groups of people that appear down in the southern area of what we call the Holy Land. Uh, it's also called the Levant, L-E-V-A-N-T. Uh, but notice here, his insight is this. Uh, he says, Yahweh worship also has its roots in an ancient religion of Canaan, the land which God promised to Abraham. Within this polytheistic religion, 
Yahweh was but one of many deities united under a figure known as El, related to the word Elohim. These, <laughs> these lesser gods included Yahweh, Ashtara, El's consort, as well as the religion's chief mother goddess, and Baal, whose worshipers went on to challenge Yahweh's supremacy in Israel. Yahweh and Baal were merely two uh, of El's 70 children. According to the mythology, each child of El was given a region to look after. Baal ruled over Canaan, while Yahweh faithfully was assigned the land of Israel. So what you have is um, scholars that study the region are observing different things, either through archaeology or other written uh, traditions, uh, that type of thing. So I want to introduce you to a tool um, that would help if you're interested in this. So every trade has tools. Uh, so mine is books. And I have on my shelf uh, a, a study Bible. And you can see how thick it is. And it's real small print. It's called the Archaeological Study Bible. So the Archaeological Study Bible talks about this in Exodus chapter 3, where these different names of God arise out of these different uh, religious traditions that we have been talking about. But here's, I'm just going to read from one uh, insert uh, of the commentary here. Uh, it says here, known by many titles in scripture, the God of Israel has but one personal name, YHWH. The original written Hebrew language contained no vowels. This name is commonly referred to as the Tetragrammaton, uh, which is derived from a Greek word meaning four letters. Virtually every aspect of Yahweh, its pronunciation, origin, and uh, significance is widely debated. Uh, it goes on, says the exact pronunciation of Yahweh is unknown, but uh, many today favor Yahweh. The conclusion is based upon uh, theophoric names, names that contain all or part of a divine name. Examples include Jehoshaphat, uh, which includes Yahweh, uh, Shaphat, meaning judge, God, uh, Yahweh judges. So he goes on and he said, uh, this um, um, commentary says, in Exodus 3.14, God referred to himself as I am. The Hebrew word translated I am, a third person form of the verb uh, to be, uh, which looks like, and many have sounded like Yahweh. According, many linguists argue that the name Yahweh was derived from this verb. Working from this premise, some scholars go on to argue that Yahweh means he is, he will be, or he causes to be. It is unlikely, however, that God intended to disclose the etymology, that is, linguistic origin of his name in this verse. Divine name in Hebrew is seldomly merely an inflection of a verb, as would be the case if this argument were true. The context of Exodus 3 further suggests that etymology was not God's intended emphasis. Moses was worried about his response uh, were the Hebrews to ask him with regard to his conversion 
conversation rather with God, what is his name? His anxiety implies that Israelites tended to be skeptical and suggests that they might have been inclined to lower Yahweh to the level of other gods, each of whom has a distinctive name. I am who I am was an assertion that Yahweh is the one and only true God. As early as the Second Temple period, following Israel's return from exile, the name Yahweh came to be regarded as so holy that its public pronunciation was forbidden. When readers came across the name, they would either say Shema, uh, Aramaic meaning the name, or Adonai, Hebrew meaning my Lord. Following the convention within Judaism of saying my Lord, when readers came upon the divine name, the Jewish translators of the Septuagint, an early Greek translation of the Old Testament, rendered the divine name Yahweh as Kyrios, Greek for Lord. This tradition continues in many modern uh, translations, where Yahweh is translated Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's how it's reflected in the text. So these cultural and historical footnotes help us a little bit to come to terms with what's going on in the text here and why it appears as though God is just being elusive when he's giving a name, I am that I am. It's actually reflecting uh, something very significant that I am is elevating him above other potential gods that have other names. Does that make sense? Yeah, Larry, can I ask another question? Yeah, go for it. Um, <laughs> what about Mel Melchizedek? Okay. Where does he fit into all this? Because he would have been before Abraham, because Abraham ran into him mm -hmm. after he, he had that one battle. So, mm -hmm. and if he was, I've always been taught anyway, that it was a... Uh, um, incarnation of jesus at that time or the angel of the lord yeah sometimes people uh have suggested that because the only other place besides the exodus reference i mean a genesis reference is found in the book of hebrews which is all about jesus right. being superior um as you read the text in genesis 14 it is, I believe, um, it seems to be an actual historical individual. And the reason the writer of Hebrews is picking up on the name Melchizedek is because of what his name means. Uh, uh, the uh, king of righteousness and peace is what his name means. So there is a lot of debate about uh, the figure of Melchizedek. Is it a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I think that's a stretch in the Genesis account. I mean, you'd have to really pour a lot of what you think the writer of Hebrews is doing back into Genesis on in that point. But um, it's showing a superior, and that's the point of Hebrews, it's showing a superior priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, that's kind of the main point in Hebrews. But um, I think that he's a historical individual. Um, the king of Salem, uh, and um, he's a mysterious figure. 
in the text. Um, he really is. Oh, he's but, not one of these other demi demigods. No, I think he is. I think he's a powerful military political figure in the days of Abraham. And I think when we read the text, Abraham is recognizing his position and he he offers a tithe of uh, some of his riches yeah. to the to him. Um, I'm I'm inclined to think that he's primarily a historical figure that later comes into the book of Hebrews as a way of showing the superiority of Christ, um, okay. that that the, um, the priests in the Levitical priesthood, they all die. OK, they're human. OK, they die. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is Melchizedek appears in the text, but there is no record of his death. And he's saying that's like Jesus's priesthood. Okay. It, he is not a priest that dies. He's a priest that lives. Does that make sense to everybody? Mm -hmm. so it's, it's complicated, isn't it? I mean, oh, you know, yeah. it, um, and but I don't think uh, I don't think anywhere in the text of Genesis, Melchizedek is recognized as a god in the sense of some deistic um, reference. I think he is elevated, certainly, but because of who he is historically uh, in the text. Uh, that's the way I take it anyways. Okay, thanks. Uh -huh. So I'm going to give you one example here back out of the archaeological study Bible, just for a second. Go over to uh, Genesis 14. So we were just talking about Genesis. So here's an interesting um, statement that is made here. As I can get to it. In Genesis chapter 14, we were just talking a little bit about Melchizedek, but in in uh, Genesis 14, you have um, Abraham rescuing Lot. And when you get down to verse uh, 17, it says, After Abraham returned from defeating Omar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, the king's valley. Now, notice what it says here. Then Melchizedek whom uh, Shelley was just referring to, the king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. So three times, this term is used here, God most high. And it almost indicates that the God of Abraham, <coughs> excuse me, has a superior position over all the other gods. It's kind of implied in the title here. He's the most high God. Okay. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's a variety and a host of plurality of gods, although in Hinduism, there is a belief in that way but 
that's the mentality. That's the point I'm trying to say. That's kind of the ancient Near Eastern mentality. A whole host of gods, and there's this one that appeared to Moses, is the same God that appeared to Abraham, cut a covenant with Abraham, and he is the God most high. And Melchizedek recognizes that. And it's interesting, that that it, that was really cool, the way that you brought up Melchizedek, um, even before we got to this verse. And he it says here, and I forgot about this, he is a priest of God most high. And that is probably why the writer of Hebrews is tying Jesus into this to show that Jesus is a priest of a greater order than the Levitical priesthood. Okay, let the circuits cool down just for a second, because that's kind of complicated for sure. Okay, let it cool down a little bit. Okay, let's move on to the next so what you do see happening, though, in the Old Testament, there is a movement from polytheism toward monotheism. And I think that's important to keep in mind, because by the time you get to the exile, one of the reasons I think that the Jewish people felt that God was punishing them with the exile was because of their lack of devotion to Yahweh as the one true God. So it seems as though what happens is after they go into exile, they, they begin to move closer and closer uh, to this idea of what we normally associate with Judaism, the belief in one God, the creator God. So it's a movement. Uh, so you can see this here in, in, it says, when nation states first emerged in the Levant, I mentioned that a moment ago, that's the southern part of the Holy Land. During the late Iron Age, El's vassals were promoted into their respective mythological hierarchies. Kamosh came to occupy an important role in the kingdom of Moab because Moab had originally been assigned to him by El. The same thing happened to Milcom and who were gods of the Ammonites and Edomites, respectively. Yahweh, as mentioned, became the chief god of Israel. So the reason I, I put that there is every people group seemed to have their own high god. That's my main point. Okay, secondly, Yahweh's supremacy in Israel did not go uncontested. When the Israeli king Ahab married the Lebanese princess Jezebel in the 8th century BCE, Yahweh's priests were fiercely persecuted while Yahweh himself was replaced by Baal and Asherah. Ultimately, however, faith in Yahweh proved too entrenched to a race, and Abraham, and Ab not Abraham, Ahab's dynasty was disposed, and Jezebel died by being thrown out a window. If you want to read this second Kings 9, 30 through 37, she dies a gruesome death. She falls from a window. She dies, and then the dogs eat her alive, and all that is left is her, uh, is her bones, the text says. Very, very descriptive. Good text to use at Halloween. Okay. <laughs> so after that, and, and of course, that's who Elijah and Elisha, really are battling against the strong presence 
of the Baal God that Jezebel wanted everyone to worship. And as they push back, and as we uh, reflect upon uh, Elijah defeating the prophets of Baal, and then after the exile, Yahweh worship does come back very strong. And it doesn't seem as though they have any more problems with polytheism, that they've moved into a solid camp of monotheism at that point. Does that make sense to everybody? So what we're talking about here really is the development of civilization, the development of people groups, and the history of these people groups takes a long period of time. This doesn't happen overnight. It takes years and years and years for this to develop. By the time you get to the New Testament, where now Jesus begins to call this God, this one true God of the Israelites, his father. And um, so does that make sense to everyone? Okay. All right. So we're going to come back to Exodus. Okay. So let's go back to Exodus chapter. So we talked about the name quite lengthy. But I want you to notice the request that, um, that Moses has of Pharaoh. Um, when he goes before, um, the first thing to notice, if you jump down to verse 18, um, Moses is told by Yahweh that the elders of Israel will listen to him. And then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say, the Lord, the God of he the Hebrews, has met with us. Now, when you look at Moses confronting Pharaoh, Aaron is with him. However, this text says here that the elders were to go with him as well. Okay. Um, although you never get the feeling that that's what actually took place, but uh, this, that's what the original intent was. And what is the request? Let us take a three day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So why three days? Why travel out to worship this most high God three days away? Is that implying that they're going to come back? I don't think so. I think in many ways the three-day journey is a figure of speech. We want to get as far away from you as possible, okay? And uh, they want to get out from under his control, as I say on the screen here. So God's going to say, hey, it's not going to work. Uh, the only way Pharaoh's going to let you go is if I display my strong hand against him. And it's fascinating here. Uh, look at verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. We'll get to that. When we get to the 10 plagues, each one of the 10 plagues is directed at the hierarchy of the Egyptian gods. We'll talk a little bit about that when we get to the chapter. So what happens next is what's fascinating to me. 
It says in verse 21, I will make the Egyptian favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and clothing, which you are you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Notice what this is talking about here. This is not just a group of oppressed people leaving the land. This is reflecting that the Egyptians are going to be defeated. The Egyptians. I mean, this strong, strong empire. You know, they're right up there with the Assyrians and the Babylonians later in the Old Testament. But plundering is what happens to defeated people, right? They take everything of value. So that's quite fascinating to me <coughs> that God is saying you're going to take silver and gold and clothing as you leave Egypt. Okay. All right. Let's get into chapter four a little bit with the time that we have remaining. So like I would be, um, Moses is hesitant and he says, I need, I need some proof that you are really going to do what you say. So there is several signs that God gives to Moses that God is going to be with him. The first one is his staff, and you'll notice that Moses raises the question, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and the Lord and say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what's in your hand? A staff. Throw it on the ground. Moses throws it on the ground. It becomes a snake, and he runs from it. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand. Take it by the tail. And so Moses reached out, took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. So the first um, sign is the staff. Now, anytime you've seen a picture of a pharaoh, what is it that he usually has in his hand? A staff, okay? So in many respects, the sign that is being given to Moses is a sign that he is representing some the God that is more powerful, right, than Pharaoh himself. Notice in the middle of the slide here, the sign is meant for the Israelites. If we look ahead to chapter 7, we will see that Moses also per performs this sign before Pharaoh. So initially, this is to be a sign for the Israelites and the elders, and specifically Moses, that he's going to be with him. This staff is not a random act of magic, though. It is a preview in some ways of Egypt's fate, the Pharaoh that holds the staff in his hand. It is also interesting that it turned the staff turns into a snake. What is the primary symbol of Egyptian power? It's a cobra, a snake. So embedded within this symbol here is Egypt is going down. Does that make sense? Okay. So the fate of Egypt is being hinted at already here in the text. Any comments there? Sign number two is Moses' hand. So the next thing that we are told is in verse six, the Lord says, put your hand inside your cloak. 
So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back in his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So this sign here is uh, a sign that his hand, uh, which is diseased, will be made whole again. Now, we, scholars are trying wrestle with what's the symbolism, symbolism of this? If the staff is kind of hinting at the fall of Egypt, what might this second sign be representing? So some have suggested that God might be talking about what is going to happen when the Israelites enter into the promised land. So he's putting his hand in his cloak. It's coming out leprous. Remember that it will go on in the Old Testament, and it will say that the land that is being promised to Abraham has been defiled. It's impure because the Canaanites are living there. So as they go into the land, they will come out clean after this impurity has been dealt with. So look at the bottom of the slide here. One of the problems with the Canaanites is that they are not a pure people. And of course, that's what the Ten Commandments is designed to do, is to make the Israelites a pure people. And so uh, they have to leave the land so that the Israelites, as they come in, uh, can uh, bring about the purity that God desires in the land through the Israelites. So maybe, just maybe, this might be a stretch, but the symbolism might be that as they go into the land, they are defiled by the Canaanites until they drive the Canaanites out, and then they will be made pure again. Does that make sense? Any thoughts there? Again, speculation. That's, that's what you have to do sometimes in the text, is just use your imagination, and, and uh, could this be what, why God, I mean, why did God pick this particular thing over something else? which is interesting. One more sign. So the next thing that happens is water on the ground from the Nile River. If you look at verse nine, it says, if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So the third sign is, this water that turns to blood. Um, in providing this third sign, um, the, the Nile is the life source of Egypt, okay? The Nile River is the life source of Egypt. Every year, the Nile would flood and provide water for the ground for the sake of uh, crops and that type of thing. And this is suggesting that um, God is going to, um, through the very first plague that we'll see when we get to the plagues, affect the Nile River, which ultimately affects their food source. Does that make sense? Okay. Down 
toward the middle of chapter four, Moses is still resistant at this point. Uh, verse 10, he tells God, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And then the Lord says, who gave man his mouth? I, I created you. Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. And his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. So it's interesting. Esty was doing some uh, reading this past week in Exodus. What chapter was that? Do you remember, Esty? Was that seven? In chapter seven, uh, we're told that um, Aaron is actually, a uh, what is it, three years? Was it three three years older than Moses? So the older brother is going to be his mouthpiece. What's uh, fascinating in all of this to me is what I have on here on the screen. It seems as though Moses is fixated on what he feels he can and can't do rather than what God can do through him. That's often all of our problem is my limitations uh, rather than God's uh, has no limitations. Um, so Moses uh, needs some help and God gives in and gives it to uh, uh, Moses in the form of Aaron. Last thing I want to say tonight is an interesting description of Aaron is what about your brother Aaron the Levite now why is the description the Levite there wouldn't Moses already know that <laughs> why does that need to even in other words this seems to be suggesting that for a later audience, they needed to understand that Aaron was of the Levitical tribe, okay? Moses didn't need this description, but later people will, would need to know that indeed Aaron was the beginning of the Levitical priesthood. So here's another one of those moments where we see the influence of a later voice and what is what they're doing is kind of recreating this, giving some further editorial comments um, that will help a later generation understand this is where the Levitical priesthood started. Does that make sense? So you'll need notice at the bottom here, one can't help but think that the entire prolonged dialogue between God and Moses was scripted specifically to bring us to this point. The Levites are at the center of God's divine plan. They're the spokespeople. They're the ones that are the intercessors. And this might suggest that the Levite priest authored this section of Exodus. So I've mentioned a couple times already, 
different parts of Exodus have, uh, it is believed, different emphases by the the word usages and, and so forth. So you have one influence in the text, which is the priestly caste that would have contributed to the Exodus book. And it might be, again, we're speculating, it might be that um, this particular editor is tying his own pedigree to the Levitical priesthood as well. But again, a lot of this is speculation, but it's fascinating, fascinating observation, isn't it? Okay, in other words, what about your brother? You know, Aaron, the Levite. Yeah, I know his name, and I know he's from the tribe of Levi. <laughs> you know, why do you need to tell me this type thing? But it, it's interesting how scholars can see this influence in the book, saying, okay, this is representative of trying to convince later groupings of people. Okay. Any thoughts on any of that? Yeah, yeah. Are you in chapter seven now or where you at? Okay. Go over to uh, uh, Exodus 7, 7. Mark has a question that comes out of this verse. And that's... Okay, so uh, 7, verse 7. His question is, why, why does this detail even need to be in the text? It says, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them, that is to go before Pharaoh. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So his question is, why is that detail there? Why is it even necessary? Whether we need to know Moses was 65 or 85 or or whatever. Um, I don't know how to answer that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it, again, a lot of these details might be for later generations to connect to uh, their their lineage and stuff. So, okay, that's the last slide I have for tonight. So let me stop the share and see if you have any other thoughts that uh, you want to talk about uh, tonight before we um, head home. Any other and any other things that you want to talk about? Yeah, I think we're all set. Thank you, Larry. Yeah. Okay. No problem. How about you, I'm Kay? Sorry. Anything else? Oh, I just uh, that's a lot. <laughs> uh, um, I always thought that the tribes of Levi, uh, the tribe of Levi, was like kind of they made a mistake, and then they were the only ones to like go against the golden calf. Is that right? Let's hold on to that. And we'll get to that chapter of the golden calf. There's some different things that are going on there. And quite frankly, off the top of my head, I don't remember the connection to Levites out of that episode, but. Um, Didn't um, they make a mistake early on? And they were, I can't remember. I'm going to have to look it up. That's what I was thinking. Of I anyway. don't know. Um, we'll get so to it. Episode. We'll get to that chapter. And. Let's hold on to that. Uh, right now, I didn't take enough Prevagen to remember it. So, 
<laughs> so, anyways, what? Right. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Very good. Well, stay safe. Uh, hopefully, the weather will uh, clear up for us through the remainder of the week. And uh, we'll come back and we'll uh, get back into the text next week. Okay. Thanks, Sounds good. All right. All right. All right. Have a good night, everyone. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.